Hi, this is Max. I'm not in this episode, but I did edit it. Just wanted to let you know that you are listening to the extended version of show number 11, which is one hour and 15 minutes long. In this extended version, Danielle and Sean discuss two poems from Richard Sykin's book, Crush, Wishbone and Planet of Love. We have the shorter version of this episode available, and it is simply called Show 11, Wishbone. Welcome to Vita Readings. Lit from the basement. This is Danielle. I'm an author and professor. And I'm Sean. I work in politics. You mean you're a political operative. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to use that word. I used to love that word, but not anymore. so badass. Why would you not tell everybody that? <laughs> well, because it sounds, because you can't walk around telling people, hey, I'm a badass. You need someone else to say it. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's yeah. fair. <laughs> I just need to take you everywhere so you can be like, he's an operative. <laughs> I, lo- I love that i'm on the road for this episode so we don't have max with us but we do have as stated before my lovely friend sean this is a podcast in which i introduce a poem to usually my husband and here one of my very oldest friends we then use it as a springboard to discuss personal narratives or issues that we care about my boys are very far away right now probably at a play date with Max on the other side of the country. They're not here, so let's talk. Excellent. So you're living in Baltimore right now? Yes. Coming uh, down to visit me in D.C.? I am. I, I live in Baltimore. I spend a fair amount of time in D.C. because I, I work in politics, and a lot of politics happens in D.C. Right, right. <laughs> so. so how long have we known each other? Oh my goodness. I moved to Fairfax in 2002 and I probably met you sometime that year or early 2003, somewhere in there. Yeah. And uh, at some point we lived together. Mm -hmm. Um, That was when I was in the MFA program in George Mason and we met because the person that you were dating there then Mm -hmm. was also in the, in the program. Um, And then when you and he broke up, um, you and I live together. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you and I and some other folks in a big house. Yeah. In the suburbs of Virginia. <laughs> good time. It's amazing what a good time you can have in the suburbs with the right people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think so fondly on uh, on that on that year uh, in so many different ways. But one of, I mean, one of the biggest ones was that you and I were living together, and I would tell you about poetry, and you would tell me about <laughs> politics. Like that, like our conversations just sort of swirled around those two subjects a lot. You know, you had asked me then um, to describe my relationship to poetry, and right. You know, aside from the poetry that you know you might read in high school or college as part of a, of a literature class. Um, my first boyfriend was a writer and he was in the MFA program with you and, and many other people who were poets, um, among other types of authorship. And I started to pay more attention to poetry, but I couldn't, I wouldn't say that I was a fan of poetry. I just kind of tried to, you know, you try to no fit in. Yeah. You try to fit yeah. in. Um, but the year I lived with you probably did more to increase my appreciation for poetry than, than really anything else. Oh, that's delightful. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, I mean, I just want everyone to know that Danielle is the only person I have ever walked in on who was laughing while reading a poem. <laughs> and I don't think I had ever, other than Shel Silverstein or someone like that, I don't think, or Dr. Seuss, I had never 
thought of the serious forms of poetry as something that could be entertaining. Yeah. It always seemed like rigorous academic work. Right. To, you know, you're struggling to understand this line or something. <laughs> um, and so you bring a mirth to poetry that I think makes it uh, more enjoyable for me. And, and I would imagine for anyone that is lucky enough to take your classes. Oh, well, I'm I'm so delighted that you feel that way. I am. Um... I think I have an easy laugh. I'm so. really sucking up to you. <laughs> this sounds like a Trump administration, like a cabinet meeting in the White House. Danielle's wonderful, and you're just Do the I best thing. Do I need to fire thing. you tomorrow? I know. <laughs> Friendship over. Uh. Um, let's talk about this poem, Wishbone, um, which I kind of came to um, suggest the book to you because I thought that you would love it. And, and you've been reading it, um, and uh, you've honed in on this particular poem. So the book itself is, like, amazing. It's really wonderful, I, I think. It's, it's, it's highly original in its um, subject matter and its, in the way that it approaches the subject matter, more importantly. Um, usually when I tell people about it. So it's, it's Richard Sykin's Crush, and it won the Yale Younger Poets Prize several years back now. And it's just one of these books that, is a perennial favorite um, of my students, um, of people that I introduce it to. And the way I usually tell them is like, it's like a sexy, violent thrill ride of a poetry book. <laughs> it's yes. If, if you could turn a Quentin Tarantino movie into a poetry, into book. a poetry book. Yeah. Maybe not Quentin Tarantino, but something along those lines. Yeah. Um, that there's something about the sort of obsessive quality of the voice and the anxiety that, he kind of has throughout that is is just it's amazing it's amazing to read and be inside of this voice as much as it is um and uh louise glick has an amazing introduction to this book has beautiful introduction to this book um and she hones in on a few of the poems but wishbone is one of them that she hones in oh, on really? yeah in the introduction oh, yeah it's, I mean, it's, it's, like... it's funny like <laughs> I, like i love that that you were interested in this book and then honed in on that poem because honestly for a long time i was like well, it's not my favorite in the collection. I, the collection overall is brilliant. And I think that poem is, you know, up to par with everything else in the book. But I, I have my like sort of chosen favorites that I go back to mm -hmm. all the time. And so I was like, oh, Wishbone, that's not one that I've like really sat down and thought a lot of. And so because you chose this poem, I've gotten to delve into it. And, and I just love it. Now. Oh, glad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but she hones in on this poem in the introduction. And I wanted to say something that, that she, she talks about. In her essay, she articulates the central tension of this poem, which is also the central tension of the book, which is this headlong, manic, um, driven, anxious uh, voice that keeps going over these scenes, basically, in, in a relationship um, with a lover um, who seems like they're always at least one foot out of the door or maybe already gone. Yes. Yeah. So the, so the, the title, Crush, has like that. multiple well yeah yeah literally a crush on a person right and being crushed by that person right yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah both and um but she says of wishbone particularly she says the poem's power derives from obsession but richard sykin's manner is sheer manic improv with the poet in all roles he is the animal trapped in the headlights paralyzed he is also the speeding vehicle the car that doesn't stop and the mechanisms of flight. This book is all high beams, reeling, savage, headlong, insatiable. Wow. Right? 
Like that's a pretty, it's so well articulated about what this book. Yeah. Her essay is almost a poem and it's. (laughs) Oh, oh, well, her essays always are. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And at this point we should just do a lot of sucking up to Louise. (laughs) Yeah. She's amazing. Um, but um, anyways, uh, I um, do you want do you want to try to read this poem out loud? Do you want me to read it? What do you want to do? Um, I would like to try, actually. I don't know if I'll do it justice, but um, okay. I do love to read this. I, I think this is a poem that just sounds great read out loud. Yeah, for for a lot of reasons. Give it a shot. Wishbone by Richard Sykin. You saved my life, he says. I owe you. I owe you everything. You don't, I say. You don't owe me squat. Let's just get going. Let's just get gone. But he's relentless. Keeps saying, I owe you. Says, your shoes are filling with your own damn blood. You must want something. Just tell me and it's yours. But I can't look at him. Can hardly speak. I took the bullet for all the wrong reasons. I'd just as soon kill you myself, I say. You keep saying, I owe you, I owe, but you say the same thing every time. Let's not talk about it. Let's just not talk. Not because I don't believe it, not because I want it any different, but I'm always saving and you're always owing and I'm tired of asking to settle the debt. Don't bother. You never mean it anyway. Not really. And it only makes me that much more ashamed. There's only one thing I want. Don't make me say it. Just get me bandages. I'm bleeding. I'm not just making conversation. There's smashed glass glittering everywhere like stars. It's a western, Henry. It's a downright shoot 'em up We've made a graveyard out of the bone-white afternoon. It's another wrong-man-dies scenario, and we keep doing it, Henry. Keep saying until we get it right. But we always win, and we never quit. See, we've won again. Here we are at the place where I get to beg for it, where I get to say, please, just one night, will you lie down next to me? We can leave our clothes on. We can stay all buttoned up. But we both know how it goes. I say, I want you inside me. And you hold my head underwater. I say, I want you inside me. And you split me open with a knife. I'm battling monsters. I'm pulling you out of burning buildings. And you say, I'll give you anything. But you never come through. Even when you're standing up, you look like you're lying down. But will you let me kiss your neck, baby? Do I have to tie your arms down? Do I have to stick my tongue in your mouth like the hand of a thief? Like a burglary? Like it's just another petty theft? It makes me tired, Henry. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm getting at? I swear, I end up feeling empty. Like you've taken something out of me. And I have to search my body for the scars, thinking, did he find that one last tender place to sink his teeth in? I know you want me to say it, Henry. It's in the script. You want me to say, lie down on the bed. You're all I ever wanted and worth dying for, too. But I think I'd rather keep the bullet. It's mine, see? I'm not giving it up. This way you still owe me, and that's as good as anything. You can't get out of this one, Henry, and you can't get it out of me. And with this bullet lodged in my chest, covered with your name, I will turn myself into a gun because I'm hungry and hollow and just want something to call my own. I'll be your slaughterhouse, your killing floor, your morgue and final resting place, walking around with this bullet inside me, like the bullet was already there, like it's been waiting inside me the whole time. Do you want it? Do you want anything I have? Will you throw me to the ground like you mean it, reach inside and wrestle it out with your bare hands? If you love me, Henry, 
You don't love me in a way I understand. Do you know how it ends? Do you feel lucky? Do you want to go home now? There's a bottle of whiskey in the trunk of the Chevy and a dead man at our feet, staring up at us like we're something interesting. This is where the evening splits in half, Henry. Love or death. Grab an end, pull hard, and make a wish. Was that a good read? I don't know. I'd... Yeah, it's good. I want to try to read it because I also love reading this out loud. Okay. I was, I pra- totally... I was practicing last night. <laughs> I, the conversation between the, the his spoken lines to Henry are just, they grip me. <laughs> well, you're absolutely right in in wanting to read it out loud. Yeah. It, it, as you, like when you were up, you were getting ready for, uh, to start this and you were in the other room, I was looking over the poem and I had a very hard time just reading it in my head. Uh, this this poem is clearly meant to be spoken, and I think that one of the one of the main reasons why this poem in particular needs to be spoken out is because it's a dramatic monologue. Yeah, um, I mean that's really what it is. And for those of you who are um, sort of unfamiliar about dramatic monologue in um, in the poetic tradition, the originator of the dramatic monologue is considered Robert Browning um, with the publication of his poem "My Last Duchess." Um, and that poem um, kind of set the stage for, I mean, obviously, there's a kind of hybridity happening here. Um, people had already thought about and heard many, many monologues for centuries from theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and these kinds of dramatic monologues, usually in a play. Shakespeare, darling. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, you know, these dramatic monologues are usually at a pivotal moment in the play and therefore a pivotal moment in the life and the characterization of a character. It's usually when they're making a decisive, it's usually at a decisive moment, they have to make a decision, a choice. Um, and, uh, you know, the, one of the most famous is the to be or not to be, mm-hmm. um, in Hamlet. Um, but there are so many, and, and we know this from movies as well. Like people at, at some pivotal moment, it's been, all the tension in the plot has led up to this particular moment. Um, And this is the part where you get this like pouring out of this character, even if the character hasn't been um, very loquacious throughout. uh, This is the part where they're like talking to this other person and they're just telling it. Uh, Usually like, this is what I've been thinking about this entire, are you wondering what my struggle has been? This is my struggle. Um, That something that they have been, they have been catapulted into this utterance um, that is the center of how they have been feeling the entire time. Is it comparable in, in, you know, everyday life? There are things that you're, there's things that are going to happen and you know, they're going to happen. They're scheduled to Mm -hmm. happen. Maybe you're, maybe you've taken a fellowship in another city Uh and you have to move or, you know, there's a, a day that your divorce is final or a day your kids go off to college and you just kind of postpone feeling too much about that. Yeah. You go through the mechanics and the administrative duties that are incumbent in this you know, pending action. Right. But then the day that you actually, when it arrives, you have to do something about it and you have to, and, and you just kind of emote. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there, we've all had these conversations before. It's like, 
you've been ruminating about this and chewing on it for a long time, maybe even years. And in this case, within the right. relationship, right? Well, in this poem, it's it's clear that this is some kind of you know messed up relationship. Where oh, he's for a, sure. deeply in love with Henry, and Henry is clearly not returning uh, the affection in the same way, uh, and possibly grossly manipulating the the speaker. Yeah. And clearly he is, this has got to be headed for something, right? Like he, he needs to get, he, I would say he needs to get away from this person. Oh yeah. But he doesn't want to, but at he all. doesn't want to. And no. this is like, this is him kind of making the argument about why he shouldn't. Yeah. While also clearly he, letting the reader know He's he's clearly like madly still madly in love. Well, with this, this is this is the great thing about the tradition of the dramatic monologue because of Robert Dr- Browning's original poem, which Victorian audiences were completely like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> like, because you, it's 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 in the in, in the voice of this duke, um, and he is um, he's talking to this envoy um, who is going to uh, sort of help the arrangement of marriage of his next wife. And uh, he is talking to the envoy um, as, as a monologue. The envoy doesn't speak back. Um, in, in the dramatic monologue, um, in terminology, he's considered the interlocutor of the speech of the Duke, right? Mm-hmm. So there is an actual character who is being spoken to that is not actually the audience, but kind of stands in for the audience, right? right. Um, and anyways, he's, he's showing this, this uh, painting of this, of this, like, this is my last duchess, Oh, look at her. You know, he's, isn't she beautiful? She looks like she's very mirthful. Yes, she was that way with everyone. <laughs> you, yeah, you, you get to know, and it's very clear, like he's a completely unreliable narrator. He is a narcissist who's also violent. In, in the form, in, in the conversation with the envoy, he basically reveals that he has had her murdered. Oh my. Because he was so possessive and jealous and paranoid simply because she had an easy laugh that she, that he's, that he somehow made him jealous and enraged, but that laugh belongs to him. Well, that, that she would deign to laugh to somebody else. He's the one with the title. He's the one who's made her a duchess. How dare she, nor would he deign to tell her, Hey, I'm feeling jealous. She should have known, but he is clearly telling the envoy this in, in a way to, like, hey, maybe you could pass this along to the other, the new one. I'm gonna be married. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, it's just like he's a villain. What a yeah, no, he's he's a he's he's sort of an emotional. He's 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 a villain. Um, but because that is sort of the um, the foundational poem for this form, a lot of people in the contemporary moment still, when they write dramatic monologues, oftentimes they will write from the perspective of a villainous or um, unreliable person. Like this person should get the hell away from Henry and Henry should get the hell away from him, right? Yeah. At some point you believe that there probably was love because there's so much obsession and passion happening here, but things have gone awry. Whatever it is that drew them together to begin with is not working in terms of relationship. But I would like to point out to you that this poem comes right after Planet of Love, which is the mm-hmm. first poem in the section. I think this is one of the poems you actually recommended when you recommended the book. I love this poem. Yeah. But this poem, if you consider this poem and then consider Wishbone in in conversation with this one. Yeah, I I think 
and you are such a more careful reader. You may have, <laughs> I'll say this and then you'll be like, no, it's, it's one of the two, uh, <laughs> but I, I can read wishbone and I can play at least two different scenarios in my head mm-hmm. that, that has led to this. And without contemplating, Oh no, other. you should be able to yeah. like, like a dramatic monologue should absolutely stand on its own. That's the thing that, that sets it apart from a dramatic monologue in a play. Okay. Yeah. That a play has an entire play around it, but a dramatic monologue, is showing a character at a pivotal moment of their life and time telling they have been catapulted into an utterance and are revealing both about themselves and about the plot mm-hmm. just in of itself. Well, one one scenario is, and if you look at Planet of Love, it kind of makes makes you think that that must be what Saiken was actually experiencing. As if he experienced this, I assume some of this has got to be it feels so emotionally authentic that I, I have hard to, to imagine think, inventing that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that maybe the, the actual, the actual details of the relationship ship here are fictionalized, but the emotional truth is there. Yes. Yeah. So I, I could imagine these are two people who have been together too long. They're in some kind of dysfunctional relationship oh, and so dysfunctional. they have fallen out of love. Yeah. But I could also imagine it, that one of them has simply been one of them has always been in love with the other and um, they've, but they've never actually been together. Mm. It's, it's like a, a drawn out tease for, yeah. for the, for the speaker mm-hmm. um, where Henry, I, I, sometimes I imagine, you know, uh, two men who have been together for a while and, and they've drifted apart, but they don't have, they haven't had the gall to, one of them's checked out a long time ago and right. Henry's checked out. Right. Right. And this but happens in lots of, <laughs> lots yes, of long-term yes. relationships. Like you're just unwilling to let go of all the time that you put in and, or you're just too afraid of what happens next. But I could also imagine Henry being specifically, you know, very physically attractive and like flirty and a charmer yeah. and just keeps using this, the speaker for, you the know, attention, the attention or yeah. amusement. Yeah. And, and possibly, uh, you know, more tangible things, right? Like, yeah, I, I read this and I'm wondering who pays for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's a definite, uh, power. There's an imbalance. There's a power imbalance here in this relationship. And, and a clearly very severe Henry, one. right. And if Henry cared for this person, he wouldn't put him through this. Yeah. But there's, there's something about the voice in his desperation. He has made himself into a kind of villain. Yes. Well, he's talking about killing him. Oh, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. And also like, I'd rather keep the bullet. Oh, there's so much bitterness in some oh, of these lines. I, yeah. I underlined some of my favorite lines because it's like he's spitting them. Oh you know? yeah, totally. Like, but I think I'd rather keep the bullet. Don't bother. You never mean it. <laughs> I love that. Like some of the, some of the best lines and some of my favorite lines in this poem are some of the, the most simple ones. Yeah. Um, because they just, they flow right off the tongue. I, I think, I don't know if you could tell when I was reading it, I, you get carried away with it. You're, oh, you do. Sometimes is this a good thing or a bad thing? Some of the words in the poem, I realized I either skipped or I changed. It didn't change the meaning, but that's how like this poem gallops, I think. Oh, her. it absolutely does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it even, you know, it, it starts off as, as, as kind of a trot 
but it doesn't start still, right? right. We're already in motion when right. it starts. You know, <laughs> you saved my life. He says, "I owe you. I owe you everything." What? <laughs> I mean, we should we should just like I mean, in, even starting in this one, like you you don't. I say you don't owe me squat. Let's just get going. Let's just get gone. But he's relentless. He keeps saying, "I owe you." Says your shoes are filling with your own damn blood. You must want something. Just tell me, and it's yours. Like. What is yep. happening <laughs> in this book? Like, if you hadn't read any other poem in this book, you might, I mean, perhaps that was the re- reaction of the audience of them well, being like, what are you guys reading? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. If you, yeah, if you just started with that, yeah. like, oh my goodness, that we've, they cut off the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting too, and I'm just realizing is until you get to his, to what he, st- when he starts to speak for himself and not just re- yeah. relating what Henry said. You don't actually know who holds the power. Yeah. Right. He has to reveal it yeah. because clearly this Henry is begging. Right. Because he's I'm imagining that, you know, Henry has done something that he shouldn't have done. Right. Or or ignored. Who knows? He may not have done something he was supposed to. And clearly the, the writer is mad and yes. Henry knows uh-huh. and Henry's trying to patch it up. And the and but the the writer knows that Henry's never going to do what Henry needs to do to yeah. patch this up. Oh yeah, and he's mad about it, and Henry's about to hear it. <laughs> well, I what I love about this is that you know it's this extremely dramatic situation. Like your your shoes are filling with your own damn blood. Never mind, just whatever <laughs> is the whole is the whole. <laughs> and, and then we get down to the to the end or or toward the middle of the poem and says, you know. It's another wrong man dies scenario, and we keep doing it, Henry. We keep saying until we get it right, but we always win and we never quit. See, we won again. How many dead people have they left? How many, how much collateral damage has this relationship done to the people around them? You know, the dead bodies are something, I've told you this before, there are always elements in poems, because I'm, I'm a occasional and casual reader right i I don't um Mm -hmm. i I don't always pick at all the lines in the poem um so the dead bodies i kind of (laughs) i don't ignore them but i I haven't ever how can you ignore the dead bodies? no no i say i don't i don't (laughs) ignore them it's just i've never quite i haven't sat down and tried to figure out what i think is really going on, right? Like, are they on a murder spree cross country? Are well, they? Well, that's why we need to read Planet of Love. But I would have to say that, like, okay, this is probably revealing too much. We'll probably end up having to cut it out. So a recurring <laughs> dream of mine when I was a girl, um, I lived in a household uh, with a father who was who a very bad alcoholic. And, um, you know, he was violent. Um, he was um, cruel. Um, and I used to have these recurring dreams that I would find the corpses of people that my father had killed. It was a recurring dream of mine. And, you know, my father's never killed anybody. Um, but one that I remember in particular was we were all as a family sitting in the living room and this corpse walks in out of the kitchen, like just a straight up corpse, like maggots falling off of his face. Um, at this point it's probably like 11 or 12. Oh my. Um, maggots are like falling off of his face as he's walking. Like part of, you can see part of his, his guts, you know, and he's just rotting and walking into the room. And and I, I start like screaming, like what, like we need to do something about this. Like why do you, and everybody just like kept chewing their food and watching the television and the television just kept shifting across their face. And they were like, just ignore it, Danielle, and it'll go away. 
I wonder if this is too personal. Have you ever written about this? This particular dream? No. This was, you could get <laughs> get some mileage out of this. I mean, but this what, is so but what I mean is, intense and the backstory to it and and just ignore it. Well, I mean, no one ever spoke about it. This is not a, a source of conversation in the household. Like this tremendously dysfunctional and violent thing was happening in our household because of my father's addiction. And there was no way for us to um, talk about it at all, to articulate it at all. So I was just taking in all of this information and literally spoke to no one about it. No one. No one in my family, not my mother, not my father, not anybody at school. Like I knew that this was like a secret secret that I couldn't speak about. Yeah, we. That's always the case. Mm -hmm. Um, It's almost always the case that without intervention from some entity that most families don't want to deal with or, or whatever the relationships may be, you know, people carry all of this inside of them. And, yeah. and there's so much drama and so much trauma mm-hmm. uh, occurring, but it's all contained within, you know, only the players get to know. Yeah. Um, and often the players don't speak about it either. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, there was there was significant abuse um in my household growing up not not directed at me right um and it was just and it was something that had become cyclical in our family and right. and you know there were you know there were essentially there were sexual predators in the family and uh-huh. it it had it was something that repeated over time yeah and i can i've come to have a very strong opinion that we do children and not just children. We don't do anyone any favors by sparing them. Yeah. Because that's what you're doing. You're sparing strangers. You're sparing children. You're sparing your, your family members or whoever, society even, uh, your story because you don't want to make them sad or it's humiliating or whatever yeah. it is. And that silence, that that pressure you feel to keep it in be- between you or in the unit, right. uh, That's that creates a, a situation where the bad actors can escalate. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so no. anyway, I'm big, I am getting back to Henry actually. I'm like, I'm wondering like, is Henry like a sociopath? And <laughs> this guy keeps cleaning up the murders, but he's in love with him. Like it, it, it's hard to say because at this point the, the, the speaker has become so entrenched in this terrible emotional cycle between him and Henry. And there, obviously Henry has to be getting something out of it. For it to be going on this this long, um, that that the speaker has become complicit in these murders, like that's what's that's what's suggested here, right? right? Um, and and I so I don't think that there is a literal corpse anywhere. I think that there is, uh, but the the corpse ends up being symbolic for the larger collateral damage. Well, see, that's of what their I- relationship, but also their own emotional lives. It's not a woman who's sitting there. It's a man who's staring up at them, a dead man at their feet. The dead man could be symbolically either one of them, like the sort of Mm. inability to get up from this situation. Um, I I know that that sort of gets confused because they're also the one killing. But I feel like the corpse is symbolic of. Um, they're killing each other over and over and over again. Over and over. Yes. Yeah. And that's kind of how I took it. That's when I said I was ignored the bodies i meant i didn't think they were literal right yeah but then when you started talking about it it did pop in my brain well maybe maybe you can take it literally 
it is entirely possible that this is a completely messed up relationship set in the context of some. Well, Richard Sykin invites us to, to think of it that way in the poem before. Are we going to read the poem before? Yes, okay, I'm going to read it out. Okay, great. It, so the poem is called Planet of Love. And interestingly, um, toward the beginning of the poem, the, the book, I can't remember where, it actually says, we're shooting a movie called Planet of Love. It says it briefly in one of the earlier in the oh. poems. And then this poem, Planet of Love, is the first, um, the first poem of the third and final section. Rolling. Planet of Love by Richard Sykin. Imagine this. You're driving. The sky's bright. You look great. In a word, in a phrase, it's a movie. You're the star. So smile for the camera. It's your big scene. You know your lines. I'm the director. I'm in a helicopter. I have a megaphone and you play along. Because you want to die for love. You always have. Imagine this. You're pulling the car over. Somebody's waiting. You're going to die in your best friend's arms. And you play along because it's funny. Because it's written down. You've memorized it. It's all you know. I say the phrases that keep it all going. And everybody plays along. Imagine. Someone's pulling a gun, and you're jumping into the middle of it. You didn't think you'd feel this way. There's a gun in your hand. It feels hot. feels oily. I'm the director, and I'm screaming at you. I'm waving my arms in the sky, and everyone's watching. Everyone's curious. Everyone's holding their breath. Cut! That's a wrap! feel like this is the moment before somebody gets shot. Someone gets shot in between Planet of Love and Wishbone, which starts, you saved my life, he says. I owe you. I owe you everything. There's just so much to contemplate now. I mean, I think, I think my head's going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> but think, like later on in this poem, he says, I know you want me to say it, Henry. It's in the script. You want me to say, lie down on the bed and I'll, you're all I ever wanted and worth dying for too. And this is, you know, you want to die for love. You always have. You're going to die in your best friend's arms. But instead, he, find, he finds the gun in his hand and it feels hot. It feels oily. So do we not know who got shot? I don't think, well, it's clearly the dead man at their feet, but it's not either one of them. I mean, but was it's the dead the, man threatening them somehow or I it seems like okay if I were going to or is this a jealous lover thing like right. they were having an affair and maybe who knows I mean yes. I, I feel like we can't we he's inviting us to think because the, the very next one after wishbone is called driving not washing and it's about them being on the lamb wow yeah I mean if you if you read the final section it, it goes from planet of love where somebody gets shot in the movie when they're not supposed to. And then a wishbone where you have this dramatic monologue of being like, grab an end, pull hard and make a wish. Like 
and there's a dead man at our feet at the end of that poem. The next one is driving and washing. And once you get the, the line, every story has its chapter in the desert, the long slide from kingdom to kingdom through the wilderness, where you learn things, where you're left to your own devices. Henry's driving. And so they're, they're moving. They're like on the lamb, him and Henry. You get road music is the next one. <laughs> the dislocated room is the, is the next one after that. Like it, it creates this whole narrative structure in the, in, in the ordering of these poems. That's what I mean when I, I'm like, this is like a violent, sexy thrill ride of a poetry book. Yeah. Like, I'm like, what are they going to do next? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard. The, the speaker of this poem, like sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to help my students imagine like a, a voice driven poem like this, I, I try to say, okay, what, what would this person look like if they walked in the room? Like you can do this with other dramatic monologues, like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. You're like, oh, well, he's got, he tells us partly he's like got a balding head and he, he's wearing a tie. He's very prim. He's kind of nervous, maybe a little sweaty. <laughs> uh, he's older, you know, these sorts of things. Like, I'm like, okay, imagine the speaker of crush and, and people are like, ah, you know, they're always like, oh, he's got like a torn and bloody white t-shirt, you know, like maybe a black eye. He's a little bit drunk. He's probably, <laughs> he's probably, he's probably he's smoking funny. a cigarette and he like comes in and he's like, what? <laughs> and you're like, this is a dinner party. Did you, did you forget that it was a dinner party? Like there's something about it. You're just like, Oh my God, you are a hot mess. Um, um, and, and here you get to understand you get to understanding um, the sort of emotional heart of the, of all of this kind well, of obsession. Now I'm curious. Um, Cause the planet of love starts the third section of this book. Do the first and second sections give any clues to the relationship between the writer and Henry? Um, well, the Henry um, at the beginning of the book, you have a number of named lovers like Max is one. Um, shout out to Max. Shout out to Max. <laughs> <laughs> I, that was one. This is the, the one with Max in it is actually uh, like one of the first poems that I introduced Max to when we first got together. And this book, which he also really loved. Oh, I wish he were here to talk to uh, to talk to us about it. But yeah, there's the lines earlier. Max yeah, and the long I... clones. Max at the party drunk again. <laughs> um, but here's where you get. But there's a lot of. So there are several sort of. And then there there are there. Jeff is another name toward the end, the very, very end of the book. So it, it's only Henry in these, like, I think, five poems specifically. Um, and. Well, is Henry definitively a lover? Well, that's a good question because he's like, I, I tell you, I want you inside me and you hold my head underwater. And that alludes to an earlier poem in the book as well, where um, we see the speaker as a young man. Let me see if I can find it. So they've known each other a very long time. Maybe. Hold on. A year from now, we should do another set of poems from this book and make sure Max is there because this is this is like a Max yeah, this is this is this would be a oh, great conversation I, to be yeah, having. With I know. Matt, it? I mean, Max has a long history of like self destructive <laughs> well, well, just the excite, like the cinematic quality to this. Yeah. This oh, book. you're yeah. right because he's such a film buff and knows yeah. about. Yeah. I mean, that was you know, another aspect some... of this. He says it's a western, Henry. I know it's a straight. You know, a shoot 'em up. And and I'm trying to figure out if he he means that's what it's turned into. Yeah. 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 But the, but the whole thing it's starting with Planet of Love. 
right? right. You're like, what is you're you're like that there I mean the whole thing, the whole book is very cinematic. It's very exciting in the way that it says but it actually to start with Planet of Love in this section. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Are we allowed to swear in the podcast? Sure. The line where he says it's a downright shoot 'em up. Yeah. When I was reading it, do you know what I wanted to say? What? It's a goddamn shoot 'em up. <laughs> I don't know why. It's just, I was like, that's what that line, that's what that word should be. Like, because I just want. I was, yeah. But but a pri- an earlier poem in in the uh, I I totally am with you on that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> it's a went. goddamn shoot 'em up. <laughs> I know it, you almost want to, but of course if he downright is good too. Down but... downright is good, but also like that's that's earlier in the poem. Like it it ramps up in its bitterness and yeah. its uh, vitriol uh, as it goes on. Right, so maybe downright shoot 'em up is is good there. But um, a primer for the small weird loves on twenty two. It starts. The blonde boy in the red trunks is holding your head underwater because he is trying to kill you and you deserve it. You do. And you know this and you are ready to die in the swimming pool because you wanted to touch his hands and lips. And this means your life is over anything anyway. We, um, we read some of these when I was on the West coast visiting you and Max. And I, it, I love that you remember all it. it's, this is a good thing about having a friend who is a writer and prepares for these things. All I did was reread wishbone. And so I don't know if you can hear it, but this is getting exciting. This is like, we're flipping the pages. Like, where does he talk about his head underwater? And who's the blonde boy? Is that Henry? It's like a giant mystery movie. And it's very exciting. Like you start to get, you should, the listeners can't see this, but Danielle is holding the book in front of this microphone, frantically flipping through the pages, (laughs) trying to find the next section. So you would think that (laughs) <laughs> you would think we were trying to solve a real murder mystery right now. <laughs> They're like, oh, wait. And then he talks about. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's this. Um, yeah, there, there's this sense that I mean, when he's talking about Henry there, I mean, he, he actually says, you know, I, I say I want you inside me and you hold my head underwater. And he has that holding my head underwater a lot throughout the entire. And so what I feel like. And there it could just be symbolic also, like, like this is an early memory of the young, of the young man in the eighth grade who reveals his desire for a friend and he loses not only the friendship, but, but any kind of sense of safety, right? If he goes to try to kiss a boy because he, he misunderstood the boys, um, sort of, or maybe he didn't misunderstand, right? Like maybe there was a moment in which it seemed that the friend was open to this sort of, um, contact and he goes to kiss him or touch his hand and the boy sort of snaps out of it and then tries to drown him i mean it's a well that's a a, very common yeah um i don't want to i want i guess maybe a common theme in in early gay relationships because oftentimes the people who are most the most violent uh, in their reactions yeah it's because of you know a deep-seated self-loathing oh yeah yeah um, so it's entirely possible that this was, uh, <laughs> that the writer misread and actually angered someone who responded right. violently, but and it's also to, possible. And we, that... we have to say speaker cause we can't assume that it's necessarily oh, okay. <laughs> Richard Sykin in any of these. Sorry. <laughs> yes. I was good about that in the beginning. Somewhere I switched. Um, <laughs> yes. And Richard Sykin, I wrote him an email and he wrote me back. So I don't want him to be upset in any way i was very excited that he yeah he was so lovely to write he wrote you back right away he did yeah yeah before uh for the people listening before i had my own copy of this book um i was look i wanted to read wishbone on the the flight back to the east coast uh 
and I, I was looking up online and, you know, not knowing certain things. I was like, this is just, there's something different about these online versions of this poem. It's wrong. <laughs> and the online versions, and I hope Richard Seigen will like when I say this, if, if he ever hears this, the online versions were not as good. Right. And like there's like little things that are just wrong about this. Yeah. Because once you've read the version in Crush, yeah. if, you know, and if it speaks to you and you go, anyway, I was like, what is wrong? Mm-hmm. It I, had some there, extra lines. Had in it. it been updated or, no. you know, so I asked Danielle and she said, you should just write him and ask him, <laughs> you know? So I did. I, we looked him up on the internet and I sent him an email and said, why is this change? And he writes back. <laughs> he was nice. Uh, he writes back and he says, um, you know, poems are often published in magazines and anthologies yeah. and whatnot before they're actually in f- finished form. So right. the version yeah. in crushes, yeah. you know, that's considered the final form. And uh, I just felt really dumb. <laughs> like, oh, that makes total sense. I was reading it on a, some poetry magazine website. Right. It was an yeah. earlier version. Right. Yeah. And then, um, and then, yeah, I went through an editorial process before I got published through the series. And yeah. so, yeah, for sure. Um, it's just nice to know that the people, the, how, what a difference that editing process makes. And like when uh, something's like when you've got it locked. Well, well, the other thing is like, so when you win the Yale Younger Poets series, the person who edits your book is Louise Glick. Look, yeah. And she's amazing. <laughs> she's an amazing editor. Wow. Um, you know, like you, you get like one of the best poets and best editors like in the country right. to, to go through that with that process. So I'm sure that he had a, a hand in helping to shape that. And, but those people are so invaluable to, um, any poet in, in a, like a lot of times now, the way that, that books get published are through, through poetry prizes and you get assigned to a press and then they don't actually have somebody go to... through every line with you and do, and, but that's actually true of the Yale or poets prize. You get Louise Glick to go through your, your manuscript and she helps to, to shape it. And that's, I think, you know, I don't know if that's true of the rest of, of the person who's editing it now. So Carl Phillips is now the editor of that particular series. And I don't know what his process is, but I would imagine at the very least, um, you might get a little, I hope that somebody could get advice from Carl Phillips. He's all, he's another literary giant, um, who would be amazing to get feedback from, but, uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. So where were we? (laughs) This is part of what I, I really hope comes through like when from this particular podcast is how much fun and how exciting uh, these poems can be when you allow yourself to speculate and, and be curious about things. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, for me, I'll point out two things. Um, Danielle and I each took turns reading this poem earlier, and um, I think you read it in a more despair not despairing, but maybe exasperated, uh-huh. just kind of like even, and the disgust was more even, more, uh-huh. more, um, controlled. Uh-huh. And I think I read it just pissed off. I was, I want, I want, <laughs> I like the speaker being angry. Like the bitterness is just like when I said earlier, spitting, he's spitting at Henry. Like, yeah, you know, I'd rather keep the bullet, you know, <laughs> and you were more like, I'd rather keep the bullet. Like it's almost he's it's almost like he's resigned to it. He's thought it through. He knows uh what this relationship is that he's not going to get what he wants from Henry and he's yeah. he's almost beyond 
the anger now. Well, maybe we'll have to include both readings because we, we well, include twice. So it would be fun to it would be fun to have maybe you read it once and then me read it at the end or vice versa. Well, I think to me that's that's um, indicative of something that I think uh, a lot of people who don't read a lot of poetry don't realize that there is not necessarily one true interpretation. Uh, what we should do is look up to see if there is a video of Richard Sykin. Yeah. This I mean, but there is, I'm sure there's something the author intended, but right. it's okay to like read it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. No, that you're, I think because I'm always trying to figure out like what's true, right? Like, are, are they on a murder spree? Is that, <laughs> Is this actually in the movie? Is this right? You know, I, okay, I feel like I feel like there is a movie that something went wrong, um, and and that this this monologue it's like something that they were playing at that became true. That's what I right. feel like. Planet of Love, right? Um, like like we were just playing at being completely carefree or not carefree. That's a terrible word for this reckless that's a much <laughs> much more precise word uh that they were being reckless with their love and their lives together um but maybe you're right maybe they're not because i can also very very much see especially since you know you hold my head underwater right that 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 this is this is a friendship that is very close and one person has all of the power because the other person is in love with them and that first person knows it right, right? i know that you're in love with me but I'm going to, I'm going to spend all this time with you anyway, because I, I like that you love me. It does something for me. I think, yes, it, it's just fun to explore and try to figure out yeah. what you think the poem is, yeah. like what the scenarios are and what the feelings are beneath like, and, and I mean, this is fairly obvious that, you know, the, the speaker is unhappy displeased with henry right, right but it's but, a constellation of displeasure right, right. yeah and, and it's not one thing pointing yeah what the emotions are and you know is he more mad is he more despairing and resigned is, is he, he more bitter yeah uh, yeah it's funny that you said that that you thought that i that i uh, but i think i'd rather keep the bullet that what what's funny is to me is that I sounded angry to me. That is apparently what I sound like angry. And that doesn't sound angry to you. It doesn't sound as angry. Which actually would explain a lot about my relationships. And why people don't seem to understand when I'm pissed off. (laughs) I'm like, oh, maybe I feel badly for all those boyfriends who who were like, but you didn't seem that upset. I I will say you got angrier. I think maybe you built to it more than I did. I just started mad. Oh, I see. Yeah, I did try to do that. Yeah, you crescendo. That was my attempt to crescendo into anger. Like, because at first the the bullet comes, you know, and like they're, they're, I feel like because the the thing is leading up to, I'd rather keep the bullet. Yeah. You know, like, because this is the, the revealing moment for the character, whether or not we believe this whole, whole other plot that's happening in it. This is clearly... This is clearly the the climactic moment of of like I'd rather keep the bullet um, like all of this has been happening. I feel like for years, maybe it's just a couple of weeks. I don't think so. <laughs> I think that, that that this relationship between this person has been happening for a really long time. And this power dynamic has happened for a long time. And this is the moment in which the speaker finally says, I am sick of this dynamic. You either love me and you're in and this is going to be a thing or you or, or you 
die <laughs> or you leave or I will turn myself into a gun <laughs> right or I'll turn myself into a gun like this is like the emotional emotional high point mm-hmm. for the speaker in terms of the crescendo of their relationship right um that you're just like I this is like this has happened and and it's what's interesting is that metaphorically or or literally this has happened before that they have been in some kind of jam and the speaker has sacrificed themselves for Henry. I can't help but be curious. Like this, this in Planet of Love. Mm-hmm. How big is the crew? Well, it has to be Who pretty big because because the director is in a helicopter, right? With right, a, with I mean, a megaphone like, raising their hands. But who's are these actors? Are they yeah. engineers? Well, well, yeah. The, that's what I'm imagining, like a big crew. If you want to t- talk about the sort of the literal um, circumstance at the moment. And see, I feel like ugh, I love these poems because they work. They're so interesting, even on the literal level. Even if we don't think that there's anything metaphorical happening yeah. here, you're like, whoa, what? It's like Chris, It's uh, like Agatha Christie wrote a poem. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, that's what I mean. Like, there's something about that is so enticing. But a sexy poem. Yeah, I yeah. know, right? I, I was going to say, it can't be Agatha Christie. She's got to be like, not, if you took Agatha she's Christie. She's not very hot. <laughs> not, in, not in her. Or maybe, her. Uh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Leonard. Uh, Elmore Leonard. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar largely with the mystery genre. I wouldn't call him mystery. Um, he wrote uh, Rum Punch, which was the... Um, we need Max right now. Uh, he wrote the, <laughs> I know we really do. Uh, Rum Punch Max. was the the basis, I think, for the movie Jackie Brown. Hmm. Maybe I'm getting that wrong. He, he's uh, Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of um, Elmore Leonard, and he also wrote um, Fire in the Hole, which was the basis for the Justified um, TV show. And I feel like those are kind of it's his genre is like kind of dangerous, sexy heist type things i mean it's it it would be fitting for this yeah well i mean in the actual poem itself he says this is a western henry this is a downright shoot him up right but i don't know if that's the movie or what they've turned it into right i i know i know i i mean i feel the same way i feel like a a, a, that like a movie called planet of love is not really about sound like a john wayne (laughs) classic i I mean but what but it's become that in this moment and then certainly it continues in that with driving and not washing and uh the dislocated room i like the way that it, it keeps going you're like oh yeah something has gone wrong and now you're on the lamb and now it's and now it's become like a western like the the law is after them you know um but whether or not we think of this as a mystery or a western or anything one of the things aspects of this poem that i really love is that the speaker is conscious of this as a kind of performance that that we get this planet of love thing before and then we get this and he's like it's it's like a western it's like a de- you know that that he is somehow both going through the experience and reflecting on it at the same time, not reflecting in any sort of like long meditative way, but that he's trying to define it in terms of cinema mm-hmm. um, and therefore is touching upon this like act that is happening between them. You act like you're sorry. You say that this is going to be better. You say that you'll do anything but you won't do the one thing I want you to do, which is to love me. So you are acting like, like you're going to be okay. And I am acting 
like it's okay. And we both know that that is not true. And here's where he's like, I am done with this performance. I'd rather keep the bullet. I'd rather keep the bullet. So is the speaker, I, I want to get literal for a second. Yeah. Is the speaker the director? Um, in Planet of Love, it may be a, it may be a different. That's a different, oh, a different, see, it, may, this is, it I, may be a different speaker. I read yeah. Planet of Love as if it were a different speaker, but you could read it as the same speaker, I think. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Planet of Love, imagine this, you're driving, the sky's bright in a word, in a phrase, it's a movie, you're the star. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to die in it, your best friend's arms. Right. And then I'm the director, I'm in a helicopter, I have a megaphone. Do you think those are two different speakers? Um, it, it starts off thinking that way. It, but then, but then we have the difficulty of, and you have the difficulty of of maintaining the idea of the distance of the. Except for that, you get back again. I'm the director, and I'm screaming at you. But you start to wonder, like, well, how as director do you know you didn't know that you'd feel this way? It feels hot. It feels oily, right? Like there's there's something that there's almost I feel like two selves, like the self that knows how things should go. And has has an idea and has an organized idea about how things should go in this relationship and how things will look. But then another another part of the self who finds himself in that situation are like, oh, I I feel differently. You know what? When you've ever like gotten into a situation in which you're like, um, I don't think I'm in love with this person. <laughs> like maybe they haven't like quite like this is fine. This is totally fine. This will go fine. <laughs> you know? Well, I wonder, see, I, I, the way I read planet of love or the way I'm reading it this time, looking at it is imagine this is the director, right? Like imagine this. Uh huh. Yeah. You're this, you're that. Yeah. You're a star. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and then on the second, imagine it's imagine someone's pulling a gun. You're jumping in the middle of it. Yeah. You didn't think you'd feel this way. It feels hot. It feels oily. Uh-huh. And then right there when it says, I'm the director and I'm screaming at you, I'm waving my arms in the sky and everyone's watching, everyone's curious, everyone's holding their breath. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that, that something there has changed? That, that's, that's why, this is such a puzzle. I love well, it. I, I feel like you get to the end of that planet of love and I mean, everyone's holding their breath. Everybody's like, oh, no. Like if like, you're waving your hands and you're like, you imagine this like very distant, like, no, stop. Cut, you know, cut, yes, yeah, what cut, are you no, doing? What are you doing? Like that maybe somebody has realized that that gun isn't a prop. Right. It feels hot. It feels oily. Right. You know, you're like, whoa, 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 what's happened? Like something bad is about to happen. And there's this like higher consciousness, which is the, the director and or a different, an, an entirely different person, right? Who can see this train wreck coming and everyone's watching, everyone's waiting, everyone's holding their breath. Like and everybody it, else can see that, that are something, that wreckage is about to happen. This dramatic monologue um, really invites that kind of mulling it over. Right. Because, yeah. um, but that's, that's sort of the pleasure of the dramatic monologue anyway. Like it's, it places emphasis on the subjective qualities mm-hmm. of the speaker because it's just one person. You don't, you don't hear Henry speak. Yeah. We don't, we don't hear him. Like maybe if we got a dramatic monologue from Henry's perspective, we'd be like, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> that guy's messing. Well, I did think there is, we, we seem to think that 
we, we seem to automatically assume that Henry has most of the power. Right. It is entirely possible that, you know, maybe these people have no, let's pretend for a minute that Henry is the boy in the trunks holding his head underwater mm-hmm. and they've been friends forever. Yeah. And maybe Henry's not gay. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe Henry's like, kind of like, you know, this like corn fed, good looking kind of dumb guy <laughs> who went to Hollywood and became a famous actor. Right. And this with is his, his best, best friend, friend who's, who's really still in love with who's him. super smart and super manipulative. Right. And has been like messing with Henry and like, and making Henry feel bad. You know, Henry, yeah. I owe you. I owe you. Yeah. yeah, but you still won't fuck me, will you, Henry? <laughs> you know? And like, in that case, like, give Henry a break, man. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. Right? But go, you, go find somebody else who will love you. But is it is it true that the reader automatically tries to put themselves on the side? All things being equal, will automatically try and identify with the speaker in the poem or in the, whatever the written work is. Not necessarily, not necessarily. Like it depends on whether or not we think the speaker or Henry is the villain in the situation. And it is, it could be, it's unclear. Yeah. It's kind of unclear. I can imagine it from two ways. I know that I know that I have been, I think I have felt the way that the speaker feels with somebody before, like completely fed. Like you say, you you say you if you love me you don't love me in a way that i understand one of the things that louise glick brings up about this poem in her introduction is that she says that this is that the accumulation and reiteration of the speaker avert some impact some deadly connection that the reason why the speaker just keeps going and going and going in these long things is because he knows at the end of it he's going to have to stop and realize what what's happened um but he says but she says This is also the way one would address an absence, allowing no pause for the silence that would constitute response. What if the speaker is just talking to himself, thinking back to Henry? What if, what if Henry is dead or gone or not there anymore? And the speaker is just reeling from that. Yeah. What if Henry's a ghost? What if Henry's a ghost? Yeah. And that's why he can't lie down with him. Oh, wow. I got, I got goosebumps now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like there's something about the, the, the desperateness of this, of this utterance. Right. And, and the desperation, not just to, to utter this, but to keep talking it over, to keep it going. It's so long. It's so loquacious. Like it keeps going around like the same subject. It, you, you don't, you don't get, and you get the sense after a while that you're just talking and talking because you're afraid of what's going to happen when you stop, which is silence, right? And even if we think Henry's dead or gone, or if we think that the speaker just actually knows that as soon as he stops talking, Henry's going to leave, if Henry's actually I, there. That one feels right to yeah, me. Like, yeah, yeah. It starts to make me wonder if Henry's, the vil- like, who the villain is. That, that, that contributes to that feeling of... Um, just uncertainty of, of which one of them. Well, if it's true to life, they're both at fault. So yeah, know? I know, right? Where are we also yeah. trying yeah. to point the finger? I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is what you do at the end of Henry the relationship. Stayed, the other yeah, guy stayed. Yeah, you both yeah, should have yeah, gone yeah, out. Like yeah. you, yeah, both of you should have ended this a long time ago. There would be much less collateral damage. <laughs> Neither yeah. one of you are innocent. <laughs> yeah, in this situation, like you need to get out. Um, I have, I have a request. I know that we need, we should probably wrap up. 
Um, other than, but I think I'd rather keep the bullet. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite? What is your next favorite line? I'm assuming that one's probably the one you would say was your favorite. Ooh, that's a good. You know what I, I love because it's, it's I mean, psyching can be so gorgeous. And one of the ones I, I just really love, there's smashed glass glittering everywhere like stars. It's a Western, Henry. It's a downright shoot 'em up. We've made a graveyard out of the bone white afternoon. Like, I love that for its lyricism. It's interesting because there's there's only a few of those in here. Yeah, I know. It's very few. And, and, and in many, many other of the poems, I mean, in, when in, in my favorite poem, Shahrazad, um, earlier in like what what actually begins the book, it's just all gorgeous. It's very, very uh, rarely that this um, in this vocal mode in this register. I have a few. What's um, your fave? I have I, I underlined a few that I'm I just I love you, saying you wouldn't let me say but I'd rather keep the bullet which I just freaking love you can say it I just mean like <laughs> I knew you'd pick that one so I wanted to I wanted to find Come another on, one I love I my favorite's the climactic <laughs> moment my favorite is is the pinnacle of it that's like the biggest turn in in the poem because he 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 starts laying it flat right there I'll tell you what I'd rather keep the bullet you know <laughs> This way you still owe me, and that's as good as anything. I, th- I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one I marked. This way you still owe me, and that's as good as anything. Because, <laughs> I mean, we have all felt that way at yeah. one point. And it is such a petty, horrible oh, way to... Oh, horrible. Yeah, I mean, you're not a good person, but you felt that. <laughs> um, I also love, um, not because I don't believe it, not because I want it any different, but I'm always saving, and you're always owing, and I'm tired of asking to settle the debt. Don't bother. You never mean it anyway. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and there's nothing special. There's no special words in there. There's nothing particularly, you know, uh, it, it doesn't create a lot of imagery or anything. It's not necessarily beautiful. It's just so raw and so real and feels. And so easily spoken. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like dialogue. Yes. In a film. Yeah. So. Oh, and one last one. And I want to say this because I don't think it's very often in my very limited experience that one of my favorites, a a, a competitor for my favorite line is the last line. Yeah. Yeah. This is where the evening splits in half, Henry. Love or death. Grab an end, pull hard, and make a wish. Yeah. I know. I love it. It's just like, (laughs) oh, it's so... You're like, you really oh, want to be a fly on yeah. the wall for this conversation, don't you? Or it's one of those things like you would think of later on, like if you're after the breakup or after the death, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and you're like ruminating on yourself. You're like, what? What should I have said? Yeah. Like I would never land this line in actual <laughs> life, right? It would never occur to me in life. It would always be like later on when I'm like ruminating and angry and like by myself talking to myself in my room, right. you know. Right. Yeah. The, per- the perfect comeback that you came up with 36 hours later yeah. <laughs> or five years later, yeah, depending yeah. on depending on how pissed off I was about that breakup. Um, I should I should also say one more thing. Uh, several weeks ago, I a friend of mine uh, unfortunately had to go out of town for and gave me a ticket to a sold out concert of Alanis Morissette. Oh, really? And I just I've been thinking you know, that came in between my trip to, to Oregon and you coming here to record this. Yeah. And uh, it has occurred to me a few times. I'm like, well, if there was ever a singer to go along with Richard Sykin's crush. <laughs> you ought to know. You ought to know. 
And every time she what runs her nails down, every time down, you you run, run your nails down someone else's, else's back, I, I hope. You, oh, every time I run my nails down someone else's back, I hope you feel it. Right, and I'd rather keep the bullet. Yeah. <laughs> right? Am I wrong? Yeah, Jagged Little Pill is yeah. the is the companion album to this book. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much to uh, Richard Sykin for, for writing this book and to, to you, Sean, for talking with me about I oh God, I wish we could have these conversations like every night. <laughs> if yeah, you need- like we used to. I love you. Thank you for talking about this with me. Um, let's see. I need to find our outro. Well, we would talk about this poem and really anything else all day long. So um, let's let you listen to this poem one more time before we go. Here it is. Planet of Love by Richard Action. Imagine this. You're driving. The sky's bright. You look great. In a word, in a phrase, it's a movie. You're the star. So smile for the camera. It's your big scene. You know your lines. I'm the director. I'm in a helicopter. I have a megaphone and you play along because you want to die for love. You always have. Imagine this. You're pulling the car over. Somebody's waiting. You're going to die in your best friend's arms. And you play along because it's funny, because it's written down. You've memorized it. It's all you know. I say the phrases that keep it all going, and everybody plays along. Imagine, someone's pulling a gun, and you're jumping into the middle of it. You didn't think you'd feel this way. There's a gun in your hand. It feels hot. feels oily. I'm the director, and I'm screaming at you. I'm waving my arms in the sky, and everyone's watching. Everyone's curious. Everyone's holding their breath. Wishbone by Richard Sykin. You saved my life, he says. I owe you. I owe you everything. You don't, I say. You don't owe me squat. Let's just get going. Let's just get gone. But he's restless. Keeps saying, I owe you. Says, your shoes are filling with your own damn blood. You must want something. Just tell me and it's yours. But I can't look at him. Can hardly speak. I took the bullet for all the wrong reasons. I just as soon kill you myself, I say. You keep saying, I owe you, I owe, but you say the same thing every time. Let's not talk about it. Let's just not talk. Not because I don't believe it. Not because I want it any different, but I'm always saving and you're always owing and I'm tired of asking to settle the debt. Don't bother. You never mean it anyway. Not really. And it only makes me that much more ashamed. There's only one thing I want. Don't make me say it. Just get me bandages. I'm bleeding. I'm not just making conversation. There's smashed glass glittering everywhere like stars. It's a western, Henry. It's a downright shoot 'em up. We've made a graveyard out of the bone white afternoon. 
It's another raw man dies scenario. And we keep doing it, Henry. Keep saying, until we get it right. But we always win, and we never quit. See, we've won again. Here we are, at the place where I get to beg for it. Where I get to say, please, for just one night, will you lie down next to me? We can leave our clothes on. We can stay all buttoned up. But we both know how it goes. I say, I want you inside me. And you hold my head under water. I say, I want you inside me. And you split me open with a knife. I'm battling monsters. I'm pulling you out of burning buildings. And you say, I'll give you anything. But you never come through. Even when you're standing up, you look like you're lying down. But will you let me kiss your neck, baby? Do I have to tie your arms down? Do I have to stick my tongue in your mouth like the hand of a thief, like a burglary, like it's just another petty theft? It makes me tired, Henry. Do you see what I mean? Do you see what I'm getting at? I swear, I end up feeling empty like you've taken something out of me and I have to search my body for the scars thinking, did he find that one last tender place to sink his teeth in? I know you want me to say it, Henry. It's in the script. You want me to say, lie down on the bed. You're all I ever wanted and worth dying for, too. But I think I'd rather keep the bullet. It's mine, see. Not giving it up. This way you still owe me, and that's as good as anything. You can't get out of this one, Henry. You can't get it out of me. And with this bullet lodged in my chest, covered with your name, I will turn myself into a gun. Because I'm hungry and hollow, and just want something to call my own. I'll be your slaughterhouse, your killing floor, your morgue and final resting, walking around with this bullet inside me like the bullet was already there, like it's been waiting inside me the whole time. Do you want it? Do you want anything I have? Will you throw me to the ground like you mean it? Reach inside and wrestle it out with your bare hands? If you love me, Henry, you don't love me in a way I understand. Do you know how it ends? Do you feel lucky? Do you want to go home now? There's a bottle of whiskey in the trunk of the Chevy and a dead man at our feet, staring up at us like we're something interesting. This is where the evening splits in half, Henry. Love or death. Grab an end. Pull hard. And make a wish. I don't know if it's more fun to read that poem or listen to that poem. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This has been Vita Readings. This is Danielle. And this is Sean. And we're wishing you a good night. Bye-bye. I've, I've never understood why we have to tell children so many lies.
Oh yeah, right? no. And we we try to dress it up as oh, it's a cute story, or mm-hmm. like no, it's a lie. It's yeah. it's actually if you did that to an adult and drug it on for years. That would be the end of whatever relationship you had, right? Like if you invented an yeah. imaginary person and convinced them that they were real and created an entire spectacle around it. In which you had to like sit up late at night right. and wait for them to come right. and be like, oh, I guess they're not coming right. for and, years. I mean, just imagine that someone did that to you as an adult. You'd be like, you sick, demented fuck. You made up songs and everything. 